Now, I would suggest to you this morning that what we just read is typically Bible flyover country. And what I mean by that is you treat this when you're reading through the Scripture in a year or whatever in the same way that you do the begats in Scripture. You know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so. It's like the genealogies. You're reading through Scripture and you're doing well. You come to those and you flip a page. Well, that's kind of how we could view this particular passage. And I have to admit, when it was assigned to me to preach, I thought maybe my friend of 15 years didn't like me anymore. But I'll tell you, I operate under the principle of 2 Timothy 3.16. I really believe that Scripture. And it says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the men and women of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I want to mention to you that we did not read 1 Kings 7, 1 through 12 because we have a limited amount of time, and also because I thought it was good to keep the continuity of what we are doing here. So last week, Pastor Kevin preached chapter 6. It was about the, um, the buildings in the temple complex, and I thought it would be good to go to the furnishings. That doesn't mean that those verses are not valuable and God-breathed. One of the things that we see in those verses, verses that talk about the building of Solomon's palace and the government complex, all of the buildings that went with the governing of Israel, is a very important um, principle, and it's that God carries out His promises. He had promised that He would settle the Israelites in their land and that they would have permanency that they would not be dwelling in tents forever. And so when Solomon builds this great government complex, uh, that shows that God is a God who keeps His uh, promises. There's tremendous value there. But we move on to the part that we read this morning. The first big principle that I see in this text is that God is holy and we are not. Now, I think most of us know that, but the temple and its offerings, all that goes with it, really shout that to us. Now, the Hebrew word for holy means to be set apart from ordinary things. It's to be transcendent. That's a very good synonym for the word holy. With respect to God, holiness means that He is separate, He is apart from, He is above everything in the created universe. God Himself teaches His transcendence in Scripture. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, we read this. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. My ways, declares the Lord, are, high, uh, are higher than the… as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, running with transcendence in God is God's sovereignty. It's a part of His transcendence, His holiness. And that is taught to us in Scripture as well, in many, many places. One of those is in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 12, where King David is praying. And remember, he's a prophet. He's praying the words of God, holy inspired words. And he says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, and the majesty, and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth are yours. 
Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are ruler of all things. Again, the structure, the furnishings, the offerings, the ablutions of the temple Solomon built all scream, God is holy. He is above all things. He is almighty, infinite Lord of heaven and earth. Israelites had to go to the temple at least three times a year. That was the minimum. And when they went, they could not have missed the things that I just said about God. Now, Solomon's father, King David, had been friends with Hiram, the king of Tyre. Now, Tyre is a port city among the Phoenicians, and um, the land of the Phoenicians was very, very narrow. It was about 20 miles wide, and it ran from northern Israel uh, up through Lebanon into Syria. The country was so small and, 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 you know, just so narrow that they were forced to go to the sea, which was at their doorstep, and they traded all over the Mediterranean. Now, they traded with Israel to get food, but they traded all over, and they traded their labor. So they had skilled craftsmen in metal and stoneworking and woodworking, and they would send their people out across the Mediterranean to earn income and to send that income back to support uh, their country. They supplied craftsmen for building projects all over. David had gotten cedar logs, stonemasons, and carpenters from Hiram, the king of Tyre, uh, for the building of his palace. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 7, as you have it before you, verses 13 and 14, you can read there that King Solomon sent to Tyre and brought Horam, whose mother was a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, so she's an Israelite, and whose father was a man of Tyre and a craftsman in bronze. Horam was highly skilled in all kinds of bronze work. Now, the parallel passage to what we're studying this morning is uh, 2 Chronicles chapters 2, 3, and 4. In 2 Chronicles 2, 13 through 14, the king of Tyre tells Solomon that this man, Horam, whom he is sending in response to David's request for a master builder, is skilled not only in bronze work, but in gold and silver and iron and wood, in dyeing and fabrics and all kinds of engraving. And the king says, sending testimonial with this craftsman, he can execute any design given to him. Now think about this for a moment and look at God working behind the scenes here to build his house. Horam is a construction manager who has all the skills necessary to supervise the building of this great temple complex for the worship of Almighty God. He has skills that are not resident in Israel. That's why Solomon, this wise man, sends to Tyre to get the kind of skills that, that do not exist in Israel. But think about this. This man is half Jewish. Horam got the skills to work in metallurgy and all of those other things from his Phoenician father. But he probably got a heart for Israel, and maybe even for her God, 
that came through his Jewish mother. And think about his ethnicity working on this building program. The fact that he is half Jewish, at least, should make it much easier for him to deal with Jewish people and to deal with a Jewish king. God raised up King Solomon for the task of organizing the nation and the resources for the building of God's house, but he also raised up in a Gentile nation at about the same time the perfect construction manager to supervise the building of his house. Now, do you think that God is still at work today? Has he changed? Has he gone out of the business of doing that kind of thing? I think not. He is sovereign Lord who in all things works for the good of those who love him. Romans 8:28. God has also given all authority and power and dominion to the risen Christ for the building of the church and for the ruling of it. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 through 22. Now, if you went into this temple after it had been completed, one of the first things your eyes would focus upon would have been two massive bronze pillars. They were freestanding pillars, and I'm going to explain that in a minute, and they were cast by this man, Horam. Casting even small objects is incredibly hard to do. You make a pattern, and then you have to get the right kind of molding sand, and you make the molds, and then you got to get the right kind of metals, and you have to mix them in the right proportions, and you have to pour these into the molds that you have made. Now, it's one thing to do it for something small, like maybe you're doing a brass angel or something, and it's six feet tall. That is hard enough, but you read the proportions of these pillars. 1 Kings 7, 15 to 20, they were 27 feet high just to their capitals. Now, I think the ceiling in this room is about 28 feet. The capital on top of the pillar was 7.5 feet. So these pillars are 34 and a half feet high. They're a three-story building and change. They were 18 feet in circumference. The tops were decorated with all kinds of chain work and all of that stuff that we read that we can't imagine, lilies and pomegranates and, and, and all of the things that were flowers and fruits uh, in the Holy Land, at least a couple of them were there cast into those pillars. Now, Second Chronicles 3.17 tells us that Horam erected the pillars in front of the temple. They were added after the completion of the temple. They are listed with the furnishings, and for these reasons, I don't think they were structural. I don't think they were doing anything to hold up like the porch of the, of the temple. Now, these pillars were named. One is Jacob, the other Boaz. Jacob means he establishes. Boaz means in him is strength. Now, there are some people that think that Solomon put these up as a memorial to himself. And I just choke on that. I have a tremendous time, uh, a tremendously hard time believing that um, he would erect these huge memorial uh, pillars to bear witness to his own greatness. I mean, this, after all, is the house that he's building for the Lord. And we know his heart as he is called to do that when the house is dedicated. 
These words are most likely connected to God's promise to David and Israel and to you and me as members of the church of Jesus in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5 through 16, the Davidic covenant. The word establish in 2 Samuel 7 is used multiple times. And what was that great promise? The great messianic promise was that God would establish David's line and David's kingdom forever. And you know who that finds fulfillment in. It's in Jesus Christ who is Lord and King of His church. Now, assuming that these pillars are memorials to the Davidic covenant, they remind every worshiper who uh, comes close to that court and enters the court of the priest to make sacrifice. They remind every priest who's working in that court, every priest who goes into the temple proper as part of worship, reminds all of them that God has made this incredible promise to His people and that God has the power to do it. God is building a kingdom on earth, and He has the power to do whatever it takes to build that kingdom. Now, Ralph Davis is a PCA pastor, seminary professor, and author. He used to pastor a church in Baltimore, and I got to know him a little bit. But he's written a book in which he notes that what drives Solomon to build the house is the promise that God made in 2 Samuel 7. And he said that this means the real foundation stones for the temple are the promise of God and God's ability to carry it out, and that the real foundation for the kingdom of God in the world is this promise and God's ability to carry it out. These two bronze pillars continually reminded temple worshipers of the beautiful messianic promise that was made to David. Now, I'm going to tell you something, and you're going to think it's just an old man, you know, wistfully thinking about the years of his uh, misspent youth. But the church in the U.S. is in decline. Now, I read a lot. I observe a lot. The church in the U.S. is not the church that I was born into. And my age on Facebook is not my real age. I just picked a year for that. I'm not really 41. I want you to know that. The church is not what it was when I was born when I was a little boy. It is in decline. But I hang on to the promise that God is building His church in the world. Think of the promise that the angel told the Virgin Mary. Your child will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. What did Martin Luther say in his hymn? His kingdom will never end. That's what the angel told Mary. Now, Dr. Davis writes, Kingdom promises encourage kingdom work. Boy, don't ever forget that. Kingdom promises encourage kingdom work. He also says eschatology drives ministry. Now, what is eschatology? It's a study of last things, the doctrine of last things. It's what's going to happen at the end when God wraps up His program for this current age. Eschatology drives ministry. Professor Davis is saying that we share our faith, 
we nurture our converts, we disciple our covenant children, we build churches, we send missionaries to far-off regions, we give of our energy and our wealth, knowing in the end the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God, the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Keep your eyes on the promise as you do VBS this week, as you do any ministry for Jesus. Keep your eyes on the finish line, and you will serve in your ministry with great joy. It'll keep you going. Now, the eyes of a worshiper entering the court of the temple would have also been drawn to that huge uh, bronze basin that we read about in 1 Kings 7, 23, 26, 2, 26. Fifteen feet in diameter, seven and a half feet high, encircled by rows of cast bronze gourds, this basin rested on the backs of twelve bulls. Their heads were facing out. There were three on each side. They were in a square. Um, the bulls likely represented the twelve tribes of Israel. The reservoir on top, this fifteen-foot basin, contained about 11,000 500 gallons of water. Now, think about this reservoir and its supporting structure. I mean, it's large. A mature bull, Hereford bull, is about five feet at its shoulders. The basin and this base of bronze bulls were 12 and a half feet high, plus or minus a little bit. The basin is 15 feet in circumference. Maybe the heads of the bulls stick out uh, beyond that, because this rests on the backs of these bulls, it's prominently positioned between the bronze altar where the sacrifices are burned and the porch of the temple. It's to the left if you're looking at the temple. Now, think of the son of Palestine. I lived through this. I was thinking about this yesterday in the rain, which is kind of funny. But think of the sun of the Middle East shining down on this structure I just described and it's all in polished or burnished bronze. Um, 1 Kings 7, 45. You had to notice it. The furniture in the temple speaks. This large and prominent basin held the water used by the priests and Levites in their personal ceremonial uh, and ritualistic cleansing. 2 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 6. The bronze basin tells all who see it that God is set apart from sinful men and women. He's even set apart from His own priests who minister to Him in the temple. They have to go there to be cleansed before they can offer sacrifice for themselves in the people. 1 Kings 7, 27 through 39, 2 Chronicles 4, 6 describe ten bronze wheel carts upon which are ten basins. Each basin could hold 230 gallons of water. We're told in first, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 4, verse 6, that these ten movable labor, labors provided water for rinsing the sacrifice before the parts of the sacrifice were burned on the altar, uh, that bronze altar that I've alluded to. In furniture and ritual, 
Temple worshipers are, re- worshipers are reminded continually of their need for cleansing by water and blood. This temple speaks. These water carts are highly decorated. We're told that Horam engraved cherubim, the spirit creatures that inhabit the throne room of God in this temple. Lions, palm trees on the surfaces of the supports and on the panels. In every available space, uh, there was covering of wreaths all around. Everyone who went um, into God's temple, everywhere in God's temple, in the structure itself, in its furnishings, there were likenesses of trees and plants and flowers and animals. The flora and fauna that is everywhere probably was to remind people of life in the Garden of Eden, the place where humans were in perfect fellowship with God. You see, this temple is about fellowship. It was the place where God said He would fellowship with His people, where He would meet them. We're going to see that in 1 Kings 8, 11, and 13 uh, in weeks ahead. Now, the likeness of cherubim were found everywhere in this temple. Throughout Scripture, the cherubim are connected with the holiness of God. They're spirit creatures connected with the holiness of God. They appear in Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 through 24. Do you remember men and women, the man and woman that God created sin, uh, and they're forced out of the garden, and God places the cherubim to keep them from the garden and to keep them away from the tree that brought continued life. The cherubim were carved on the doors of the first room of the temple. They were carved on the doors of the most holy place of the temple. They were woven into the veil that was between the first chamber of the temple and the second chamber of the temple, the most holy place. Uh, We see these things in 1 Kings 6.35 and in 6.31 and 32, 2 Chronicles Chronicles 3.14. The carved and woven cherubim on these doors were symbolic um, of the cherubim that kept Adam and Eve from the garden, I believe. The cherubim on the temple doors proclaimed that sin keeps humans from fellowshipping with a holy God. Now, in addition to these significant bronze pieces, Horah made a multitude of pots and meat forks uh, for cooking meat. There were parts of the offering, of some offerings that the priests could eat and the people who offered could eat. So, he made all of those utensils. He made shovels for handling the ashes of, of sacrifice. You read that in 1 Kings 7, 40 and 45. Now, we cannot look in detail at the rest of the furnishings of the temple, but I want you to notice something in 1 Kings 7, 48. The material for the furnishings changes from bronze to gold, and we believe that that is very significant. Now, I don't have time to go into it, but I think I can prove that Horam actually made the gold things as well, but I'll… If you come back at 1045, I'll let you in on that. But the change from bronze to gold is significant. You see, we've gone from the, from the courtyard of the temple where men are permitted to go to bring their sacrifices to the furnishings that are inside of the building itself. 
we're moving from where sinful men can dwell and move to where the transcendent, absolute, holy, sinless God dwells. And because we are approaching the Lord, the materials become more glorious, like our God, rarer, and more precious. Kevin showed us last week in 1 Kings 6.22 that everything in the holy place and everything in the most holy place, that smaller room where the Ark of the Covenant was watched over by two 15-feet-tall cherubim, was covered in the finest gold. The gold altar of 1 Kings 7.48 was located right up against uh, that veil that separated the first chamber, the holy place, from the most holy place. On it, the altar of incense was burned. The burning incense represented the prayers of people who had been cleansed by sacrifice. They represented fellowship with God in prayer. Lining the walls, north, uh, north and south, were five golden tables on one side, five golden lampstands on the other. On the ten, t- ten tables, there was bread placed regularly to show that God is a God who fellowships with His people, and He provides. The lampstands were seven branch lampstands showing that God doesn't dwell in darkness. He's all about light, and that God's people are to be the light of the world. All of the bowls, all of the dishes, the priestly tools used for sprinkling blood, for burning incense, for tending lamps, all is made of pure gold. All the indoor temple furnishings and implements are gold. Everything in the court of the priest, everything in the holy place, everything in the most holy place is designed to teach men and women, boys and girls, that God is absolutely holy and we are not. But you know the good news is, and it's all over this temple, God makes us holy. God who is transcendent, who is above and beyond all created things, who by, his, by virtue of His holiness and man's sin is separated from man, has drawn near to man. This temple and its furnishings witness to God's desire to receive men and women, boys and girls, into fellowship with Himself. This God is in heaven, and His name is hallowed as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, but He longs to be a Father who is with us. There is a most prominent piece of furniture that I have not yet discussed, and it's in the courtyard. It's right in line with the porch and the door that goes through it into the holy place, and then beyond that, the door to the most holy place. This piece of furniture is 15 feet high. It's 30 feet wide, 30 feet long. Second Chronicles 4.1 tells us about it. It's the altar of burnt offering. All offerings made in whole or in part, depending on the type of the offering, are burned on it. If sacrifices are not burned on that altar, they are not accepted by the Lord. The Israelite brought his sacrifice to the north side of the altar. He placed his hand on that animal, and that signified transference of sin. 
The animal became a substitute. Animals can't sin. It's not possible for them. He laid his hands on that sacrifice, transferring his sin uh, symbolically to that animal. The offerer slew the animal. A priest got the blood in one of those bowls, bronze bowls, and sprinkled it out at the foot of the altar. The sacrifice was washed, and it was burned on that altar of sacrifice. And when that blood was shed, God obliterated the sins of the person committing them and the penalty, which was violent death, that went with the sin. The Israelite burned, his offering was burned, and that represented his surrender, his complete surrender of his life to God. When we see God in the furniture, in the buildings of the temple, we should come away with a new appreciation of the transcendent and glorious person whom we worship. We should see our sin more in the way God sees it. We should begin to see how utterly offensive the smallest sin is to Him. And we should feel guilt. Now, we live in an age where everybody tells you you shouldn't feel guilt. We should feel guilt when we come before a holy God in our sin. In the last hundred years, the Western world, and even, I think, the evangelical church, has managed to strip away much of the guilt from sin. Sin used to be Ebola, and now it's a common cold. People can live in open sin, walk into church, worship, walk out, and never be bothered by the things they're doing that are contrary to the law of God that we just read together. That happens regularly. Don't use the behavior of the people around you to judge your holiness. Look at the temple and the other scriptures. This is scripture. It's scripture speaking in furniture. And, and look at yourself and examine yourselves by God's standard, and then confess and repent of your sin. Turn from it. If we come to the Lord and see Him as He really is, our response should be like Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 6. And I looked at it again this morning. I don't know that he fell on his face, but I, I'm guessing that if the Scripture doesn't tell us that he, he really did. And he says, woe is me, I am in, undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He saw his sin when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. But you know, in that scene, the, the, the seraphim, uh, comes, the serf comes and takes the tongs and gets part of the sacrifice from the altar, coal from the altar, and touches it on his lips, and his sin is forgiven. A study of the temple should also cause us to repent of our casual approach to the Lord in worship. And I've been guilty of this so many times. I mean, if Old Testament believers came casually before the Lord and they didn't give him what he was supposed to get, they could end up dead. We need to remember who it is we're worshiping and conduct ourselves accordingly. And when we study Solomon's temple, we should also see the Lamb of God who was slain, His blood poured out, roasted for us in the Jerusalem sun under the wrath of God, and we should rejoice in our hearts that our sin is gone and that we have fellowship with Almighty God, the fellowship has been restored. The building, the furniture, 
the washings, the priests, the sacrifice, all point to the one who is both victim and priest. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Thank you, Father, for all of Scripture. Thank you for the parts that are hard. Well, I would have never, never preached this if it hadn't been uh, assigned to me to preach. But I'm so thankful that, that you put me in the place where I had to come to grips with what the temple spoke. Father, I pray that you would help us to see a holy God. I pray that you would help us to see the sacrifice that was made, that our sins might be forgiven. Father, help us to see how sinful sin is in an age where people don't see it. Father, for those who are present who don't know Jesus, we pray right now that they would confess their sin, that they would say to you in prayer, I realize that I violated the law of God that we read this morning. And Father, we pray that they would see the continuity of Scripture, the beautiful plan that you have for restoring people, and that they would ask Christ to come into their life, and that they would give their lives to him, Father, as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.